0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle and coming up on this week's program, we'll revisit Florida's Windover dig, one of the most important
1: archaeological excavations in the world. As an archaeologist, you really are walking on cloud nine. When you get dates back that are several thousand years old and you start to get things lined up that that it does look like you'll be able to get the funding to actually do the excavation.
0: Organized crime boss Meyer Lansky avoided prosecution to enjoy a comfortable
2: retirement in Miami Beach. He was the mastermind really for the Mafia. He was the, quote, inventor, unquote, of what they called skimming.
0: Remembering the Freedom Riders and their fight for civil rights in 1961, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In 1982, Baco operator Steve Vanderjack was working at the Windover Farm subdivision in Titusville, about one mile southeast of the intersection of Highway 50 and I-95, when he noticed that he had uncovered a human skull. Upon closer inspection, it was clear that other remains had also been disturbed. After it was determined that this was not the dumping ground for a contemporary serial killer, but a much older graveyard, developer Jim Swan asked Guy Spearman to call the Anthropology Department at Florida State University in Tallahassee. That call made its way to a young professor named Glenn Doran.
1: Guy Spearman called Pat Hogan at FSU and said "You know, he was associated with a construction project down here and they had found human skeleton material and was there anybody interested in it and Pat Hogan was at that time Vice President and he called the Anthropology Department and said I've got this guy down in Titusville who has found some human skeletal material and he wants to know if anybody over there is interested and so the secretary had scribbled a little note you know on a a typical little yellow sticky and stuck it in my box and it said something to the effect of uh, "Call, call Spearman skeletal material Titusville and that was about the extent of it, and it really everything fell into place after that. Upon his arrival, Dr.
0: Doran encountered difficult working conditions, but he quickly came to realize that the bones and artifacts that had been uncovered at Windover could occupy his attention for the rest of his
1: career. It was certainly the nastiest-looking place I'd probably ever seen. Uh, you know, there were a couple of long rose boil banks of peat, you know, decomposing in the summer sun, you know, the weft of, you know, rotting vegetation and sulfur wafting around. And uh, it, it really looked like nothing I had ever worked on before. But then as you walked around, you thought, my lord, you know, there's actually incredibly well-preserved skeletal material in some of this peat. And of course, then your mind starts racing with, okay, if, if we've got this much material out of these few, you know, bucket loads of uh, you know, backhoe work, you know, then you start thinking, okay, what else is in that pond, you know? And from everything we could see and what we know about Florida archaeology, it was it was an intentional burial area. And in most places, in most time periods, people artifacts with their deceased as well. So not only do you have the opportunity for the, the simple the, the human biology part of the past, but you also have a, an, an incredible opportunity to capture materials that, that go into these wet sites. In some cases they are they're literally things that you never ever see in a typical dry terrestrial site. So it it opened up just an incredible number of of possible windows and and then you spend a couple of years trying to figure out how to maximize the information if you can figure out how to get the money and if you can figure out how to drain the water and there's about a thousand other ifs that you have to work your way through. But it just all fell into place. One
0: fact that was of particular interest to potential funders of the excavation was the extreme age of the human remains and artifacts discovered. Dr. Doran and his team had anticipated the site to be as much as 3,000 years old but early tests revealed that the remains at Wendover were between 7,000 and 8,000 years old, about 3,200 years older than King Tut, and about 2,000 years older than the Great Pyramids
1: in Egypt. There's no ceramic material in the peat materials that were scattered around. So that made you think that it's at least 2,000 to 3,000 years old. But there was nothing with the, the skeletal material that clearly, you know, stated or uh, gave you an indication of how old it was. And that was something that we really had to resolve. Uh, and we actually went back to Guy Spearman uh, with EKS and explained the problem and explained the importance of, of really figuring out how old the material was. And so EKS, you know, paid for the first couple of radiocarbon dates. and. They were give or take about 2,000 years older than what we had anticipated. I was guessing somewhere around five to five thousand, and it turns out they were about seven thousand. So it was like, oh boy, you know, this is just you know, too good to be true. too many things falling into place. As an archaeologist you really are walking on cloud nine when you get dates back that are several thousand years older and you start to get things lined up that that it does look like you'll be able to get the funding to actually do the excavation.
0: It took Dr. Doran and his supporters two years to acquire funding to do a proper excavation of the Windover site. Three separate excavations were conducted over a three-year period between 1984 and 1986. The money proved to be very well spent as hundreds of ritualistically buried bodies were uncovered. The anaerobic environment kept the ancient remains and artifacts extremely well preserved. Dr. Doran.
1: You know, every society has a, a variety of, of sort of ways that they they bury their loved ones, you know, the prescribed manner. And for some reason, and we really don't know why, uh, in central Florida from, say, 7,000, maybe 8,000 to about 6,000 years ago, uh, people were put into little small, uh, permanent ponds. Not a lot of deep water. You wade out to the edge of the pond and you know, scrape back some of the loose peat and then place the, the individual there. And in some cases, they were wrapped in sort of a, a, a fabric material. Think of a burial cloth, basically. Uh, and then in some cases, the, they actually took stakes and would pin sometimes through the burial cloth, sometimes just sort of uh, on top of resting against it to hold the body into that peat bog. Uh, I do some forensic work and so we have a a pretty good understanding now about decomposition processes and and what goes on and without the stakes I think the bodies would have would literally have floated to the surface. So this was a the staking process was important in keeping them down and like we said earlier most of the time uh, people have a tradition of burying items that were no doubt important to them, important to the community, important to the family with the people that they placed in the bog. And so you get this, this double set of information, you know, the, the skeletal biology, what it was like to to be alive seven and eight thousand years ago, health and age and, and uh, sex, these kinds of issues and pathologies. But you also get that coupled with the artifact inventory. Uh, one of the other things that is is certainly interesting in the specifics for the site, but also in a broader context, is we got really incredible detailed information about how the prehistoric environment has changed in Florida, really for the last eleven thousand years. Uh, so from the close of the Pleistocene, the end of the Ice Age, all the way up to you know, really the, the launch of, of, you know, satellites, you've got it captured right there in this little peat bog.
0: The Florida Public Archaeology Network is administered by the University of West Florida in Pensacola. Rachel Wentz is director of FPAN's East Central Region, which covers eight counties, including Brevard, where the Windover dig occurred. Dr. Wentz is a bioarchaeologist who studied under Dr. Doran. Dr. Wentz's graduate work focused on the health of the Windover people.
3: There are some really fundamental aspects of skeletal analysis which you achieve first, which is determining age, sex, stature. Age and sex are very important because we look at age distribution, sex distribution, to help formulate what the population was like, how old they were, how old they were when they died, what was the average lifespan, and we can do those things by looking at whole populations. And it's only when you look at an entire population and start comparing populations that you get a real picture of what life and health was like looking at one individual if someone were to examine you all they would know was about how your life was lived what your health was like but when you take a skeletal population and that's where Windover is such a spectacular find because it was such a large population and it afforded us a look at health from neonates all the way up to the elderly because we had such a broad population profile from this site. So you just mainly just determine age, sex, we look at pathologies, that's what I'm most interested in, but depending on your specialty we have people that specialize in a stable isotope analysis looking at diet and place of origin. Um, molecular analysis is just growing by leaps and bounds as our techniques and as our science improves so DNA analysis has become really fundamental to our field and uh, really you can kind of take a slant at anything you want to because you can plug those concepts in like looking at pathologies, looking at sex distribution, looking at grave good distribution and and infer aspects of social structure.
0: Dr. Wentz points out that the bones of the Wendover people changed many people's perception of prehistoric culture Many had assumed that if a person could not do their share of work in such a society, that the person would be abandoned or even killed. That was clearly not the case with the Windover people.
3: And that's a really important aspect of social structure that we were able to examine with Windover because we had people with really significant pathologies, injuries, and yet they persisted. We have one elderly female with a really traumatic fracture to her right femur and the bone was really malaligned when it healed, but it did heal, and it slowly remodeled over years. She had a lot of extensive shortening to the element, so she must have had a really severe limp, but somehow she got along. She lived well into her, you know, late into life. So someone assisted her, you know, the healing process for a fractured femur is really extensive. You fracture your femur today, you're in traction for several weeks. Of total immobility. So when you think of that in terms of a hunter-gatherer population who has to move from site to site, who has to procure food, every single meal you have to fight for, um, th- those are really significant things. We also had a young individual, young male with spina bifida, who had some really severe systemic associated problems, and someone took care of him till he was a young, you know, young adult. So there were many instances of care that we see by examining these these types of skeletal pathologies and lesions.
0: The anaerobic peat bog at Windover preserved not only skeletons from between 7,000 and 8,000 years ago, but soft tissue as well. Intact brains were found in 91 skulls, and one woman's stomach contents indicated a last meal of fish and berries. Some of the oldest woven cloth in the world was wrapped around the bodies, and a bottle gourd demonstrated advanced horticultural techniques.
1: Dr. Doran clearly the the bottle gourd is one of my favorites uh, It is what's referred to as a semi domesticate It is something that that really doesn't do well by itself as a weed it It usually has to have some human intervention to keep it going to propagate it uh, and and they're used for hundreds and hundreds of things all around the world, everything from the body of a of a sitar to sounding boards on uh, various kinds of xylophone musical instruments, they're water containers, they're, uh, you know, used as all sorts of, uh, they're in masks in some cases, and just absolutely had not anticipated seeing one at Wendover and it was in fact with a burial and there's a couple of other small fragments of bottle gourds from the site and and it, it actually pushed the the date of bottle gourds back in North America by about 2,000 years. And again, undoubtedly these things were all over the place but they just don't survive in a typical archaeological site you have to oddly enough you have to either have extremely wet and saturated like we do in wet sites or extremely dry in desert uh, context and in rock shelters where there's never any water and you get this kind of incredible preservation of organic materials you know all the bone all the antler all the woven material it's it's just really a an entirely different perspective on on prehistoric technology. Almost three
0: decades after the Windover site was first discovered, new generations of anthropologists and archaeologists are still learning from the artifacts and remains uncovered there.
1: Well certainly the the bottle gourd has made us stop and ponder, you know, what are we missing from the archaeological record and what are the connections there. Uh, Some of the, the health implications from Windover are that you know, that that life in fact could be pretty darn good. At the same time, we do see enough health problems in samples as early as Windover that, that seem to be settling down. They're not as mobile as they once were. And there are challenges to living in larger groups in, think of relatively restricted areas. I wouldn't call it an urban setting by any means, but clearly, these were not, I think, as, as mobile as many people, maybe even in Florida and other locations that didn't have the, the abundance of food resources. Uh, and so those are some challenges that, that populations face, so we're getting better information on that. And, and clearly, the, the, the whole weaving industry thing was, uh, was an eye-opener, and again, you know, I've talked to some archaeologists who... Uh, you know, ask about you know, weaving technologies and they just sort of have a blank look and because they never experience and they never see and they never deal with materials that really show this incredibly detailed uh, technology. Uh, you know, people are people and they're really sophisticated and a lot of times if you only sort of get to look at, at their experience, their life experience through uh, you know, a hand of ceramics or a handful of lithic materials uh, wet sites are a real good reminder of just how complex people and societies can be and, and how diverse uh, you know, the technologies really, really are. Today, an
0: historic marker is placed near the actual site of the Windover dig. The ancient pond itself lies quietly surrounded by heavy brush and vegetation and a residential neighborhood. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You'll find an archive of this program, information about upcoming events, lots of Florida books, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Although suspected of operating an organized crime syndicate with gambling interests in Las Vegas, Florida, and Cuba, Meyer Lansky enjoyed a quiet retirement in Miami Beach. Janie Gold has the story.
4: Meyer Lansky seemed like a typical but very wealthy grandfather when he lived in Miami Beach in the 1970s and 80s, but he had ties to the underworld that dated back to the 1920s. Retired FBI agent Bill Murphy, now of Vero Beach, kept tabs on him.
2: I was assigned to him and interviewed him many times. He was one of the ones that never really got put away.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing stuck?
2: No, nothing stuck. He was the mastermind, really, for the mafia. He was the, quote, inventor, unquote, of what they called skimming for the gambling casinos in Las Vegas.
4: Lansky emigrated from Russia to New York with his family in 1911.
2: He was linked to violence early. He was one of the originators of an organization known as Murder Incorporated along with Bugsy Siegel and some other notorious gangsters. They performed contract killings for the Mafia.
4: You were assigned to him to make a case against him. So you interviewed him a few times. Yeah. What was he like?
2: Actually, at that time, like your grandfather almost, he lived in a condominium and walked his dog every morning. Then he would go and play cards with a lot of old gentlemen over at one of the cabanas at the different hotels. We never had him really participating in anything down in the Miami area.
4: Was he still operating in Las Vegas?
2: Yep, he was. He made trips back and forth. He had one son that was a doctor, and he had another son that was an officer in the United States Army and he had a daughter none of them were involved in any illegal activities and of course he denied that he ever was <laughs> anytime you would talk to him and bring up the word organized crime he would say well what is organized crime <laughs> <laughs> he was just always very non-committal he was always very cautious he thought he was being bugged If I call him to interview him, he would tell me where he wanted to interview him, maybe in a restaurant or out in the street.
4: I was going to say he probably was being bugged.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) More than people know. He
4: was a real newsmaker back in the, I don't know, when was it, the 80s? Is that when he died?
2: We did go to his funeral. We took names and photographed everybody that was there.
4: That's how the mob was broken in the Northeast, isn't it? The Appalachian meeting?
2: That was in 1957 up in Appalachia, New York. They had a meeting at a rural home. A state trooper happened to be driving by and saw all these cars. When they went up to the house, they were all jumping out of windows, running everywhere. But that's when it was really established that there was an international organization known as La Cosa Nostra, the Mafia. Before, it was just always a group of Italian gangsters, or like in Philadelphia, they called them the greaser mob.
4: You were able to connect the dots at that point. Connect the dots. The uh, Lansky funeral, was it productive in that way?
2: We didn't identify many new people that we didn't know that were friends of his. Were you there? I was listening to some things somewhere else.
4: A different situation? No, that same thing. At the funeral home?
2: Yeah. We knew what was going on inside there.
4: Anything interesting? Not really. So what happened to his operation after he died?
2: He actually, at that time, didn't have his own operation. He was just, you might say, like a consultant.
4: Retired FBI agent Bill Murphy lives in Vero Beach. And one final note, Meyer Lansky died of natural causes.
0: Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. For 16 months, beginning in May 1961, a diverse group of people calling themselves Freedom Riders strove to bring attention to racial injustice in American society. Bill Dudley talks to the author of the first comprehensive book on the rides, as well as two of the activists who were there. They knew there would, might be real consequences, almost certainly would be real consequences.
5: They, Most of them wrote out their wills before they left because they weren't sure at all that they would come back alive.
6: University of South Florida historian Ray Arsenault. Shortly after its publication in January 2006, his book, Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice, was hailed as the definitive history on the subject. Now, a year later, Arsenault looks back on his decade-long labor, which included tracking down and interviewing nearly half of the 436 people who took part in the rides. I did feel a terrific sense of responsibility to do the best job I could to do justice
5: to their actions, their sacrifices. And had no idea what the reaction would be. It's
6: very intimidating to write history when you have so many people looking over your shoulder. One of the earliest and most successful forms of what was called direct action, the Freedom Rides began when two groups traveled south from Washington, D.C. in May 1961, hoping to integrate bus terminals, restaurants, and restrooms across the south.
5: 54% of the Freedom Riders were black. 46% were white, which belies the stereotype, I think, when most people... Think of the Freedom Riders. The first thought is a white college student from the north going down on the buses. Many were white and many were from the north, but 45% of the Freedom Riders were born in the south.
6: The riders soon made national headlines when some were beaten and one of their buses burned in Anniston, Alabama. Now retired from a career in broadcasting, David Myers was attending a predominantly black college in Ohio on scholarship when he read the story. I
7: was one of maybe 20 or 30 white students when I started there in 1958. And it just seemed like the natural thing for me to do, to do anything I could to make an even playing field in America for those teachers I had, my roommates, my classmates, and all of that. And as a result, I was involved in local sit-ins and things around our college. And then in 1961, in the Freedom Rides in Jackson, Mississippi, I was went by bus from Montgomery, Alabama to Jackson, was arrested in Jackson, and spent about three and a half weeks in jail there. They kept
3: us on death row and separate from the other prisoners, and they wouldn't let us work. We got out twice a week for showering.
6: Like her friend David, Winona Myers landed in Mississippi's Parchman Farm Prison. Refusing to cooperate, she stayed six months behind bars.
3: It was a, a, a time for reflection. Like, I was hoping our old age would be a time of reflection. Only I started at, at 19 instead of... 70.
6: After 45 years, the Myerses feel the book has finally validated their experiences as freedom riders.
7: Segregated travel had been a big issue in the United States for 75 or 100 years, and nothing had been done about it. He went to court, court decisions were made, and then nothing happened. In about six months' time, 480 people desegregated transportation in the United States in a nonviolent way and it has never gotten much recognition.
6: Beginning his nationwide author's tour in January 2006, Ray Arsenault says he quickly realized the writer's story was resonating with people in unexpected ways. I'm not accustomed to seeing
5: people with tears in their eyes in, the, in an audience when they come to a book talk, speaking you know, with cracked voices, with emotion, when they ask questions. And I know way I'm suggesting that this was my oratorical brilliance or anything like that. But the story that I was relating to them, trying to show that here was a group of individuals who chose to take a stand, in many cases go against their families and friends and neighbors. I got the sense that this was such an unusual story for so many of the people that I was talking to that it opened them to a a different sense of what they might do with their own lives they would ask me, they'd say, is there anything today that's equivalent to this? Is there anybody doing things like this? And I tried to be as hopeful and optimistic as I could be, but frankly it wasn't at all easy to come up with contemporary parallels for them, and yet I still felt that I hope they went away feeling empowered as as individual human beings.
7: I feel vindicated because there was a lot of criticism of what we did. I had a lot of trouble in my hometown in Indiana as a result of, of my arrest in Mississippi and the Freedom Rides. And I think now that it is recognized as, a, as something that was constructive and good for America. It was a different time and a different world then. We all agreed
3: to a dream that this could be a better world and a better place. And the students were just ready to participate in this
6: brave new world. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Visit us on the web at flahum.org.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural
6: Alliance, Incorporated.